Ozone. Welcome to the Ozone Podcast, featuring Jaguars.com senior writer John Osher and Jaguars executive producer Dave DeCandis. This week is one I'm excited about, not because it's necessarily a new voice to Jaguars fans, but it's an old friend of mine. I think most people who follow the Jaguars know that Pete Prisco, who is our guest, and I go way, way back. We covered the Jags together. But one of the things on the Ozone podcast that we wanted to do was perhaps give the viewers, the readers, the listeners some insight into people that they hear from in a way that they normally don't hear about that person. So in today's Ozone podcast, we're going to talk to Pete Prisco, maybe not as much about the Jaguars per se, but get into a little bit of Pete's background, how he and I met some of the early times with the Jaguars, and give fans a chance to get to know somebody who they have certainly heard from a lot. So today's podcast, Pete Prisco. Pete, how you doing, buddy? Oh, sure. Quit telling people I'm a friend of yours. I mean, come on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if we aren't friends in this business, I don't know who is. I mean, yeah, you're right. That's kind of the nature of this podcast. And uh, we've talked over the years on Jaguars channels a lot about the current team. And goodness knows we've talked enough about Tony Baselli that uh, we're tired of it. But beyond that, uh, we covered this team for six years together, wrote a book, saw a lot of things that I'm not sure that the people who listen to the Jaguars know much about your background beyond CBS and the Times Union or some of the stories that we saw in six years when you, me, and uh, Mike Bianchi were traveling with this team. So. I'm hoping over a couple of podcasts to get into that. I think it'll be fun. So it's, uh, I, it won't be no Baselli talk, although, although I'm sure you might like that. Yeah, enough with him. <laughs> I mean, my God. You know, it's, all we do is talk about Baselli. Get him in the hall. Get him in the hall. Enough with him. At some point. And there's other guys. I'd love to get into Jimmy and uh, some other guys who I think ought to be in the hall from that time. And hopefully we'll get into that as well. But before we start um, – I see a couple of questions that maybe even I don't know that well. I know you went to ASU and then took some uh, turns through Denver and Tulsa before the TU. But tell people how you got to the TU and sort of how you became a Jacksonville sports media guy. Yeah, I went to ASU, um, majored in broadcast journalism, which is kind of funny now because most people majored in journalism and most of the stuff I do now is all broadcasting. So that worked out well, even though the school at the time wasn't great for that. It is now. It's probably the best school in the country for broadcast journalism. They have a giant facility downtown now, Walter Cronkite School of Journalism, although they've never honored me. So I don't, I don't, you know, but they, they, they haven't, it never brought me back to speak or anything. Maybe they remember how you were when you were there. Yeah. We, I worked in the school paper. I was a good guy. You know, that was the fun part of it. We all worked on the school paper and I was the sports editor and got to go on road trips. When the, we, we had wow. every, we had like four of us and we got to divide up the road trips and we traveled with the, the media relations director and had to stay in the room with them. But we got, here's what we got when we got on the road. You got all the, you know, free food you could eat uh, on the plane and everything, which was huge for a college kid. And then stats for the TV broadcast, which they paid just like 35 bucks, which was gold for the next month in college back then. So it was a great experience. I I picked first and LA 
And then somebody picked, I think that year it was, they picked Stanford and then Oregon. And then I picked Washington. I had the, the last one was mine. I got Washington state and uh, went to Idaho to, because it was only 18. Washington at the time was 21 and the bars closed, John. And I had no way to get home back to the hotel. <laughs> and there were no cabs. I had to beg for a ride. Finally I got back and had to be on the bus in like five hours. You should have Ubered. You couldn't yeah, Uber in 1980? There was no Uber then. But you'll, you'll remember this. There was actually a sports bar in Idaho where they had a nail hammered into the wall way up. And I said, well, what the hell is that? Do you remember Gus, uh, what was his name? Gus Johnson, who played for the uh, Bullets and Wizards back in the day. Big yeah, yeah. forward. Well, that's how high he jumped. And it was there to challenge anybody who wanted to try and reach it. And I think because he went, I think he went to Idaho, and and that thing stayed there forever until DJ's little brother broke the record, Joey Johnson, and he ended up playing. Wow. I think a little bit too. So, and so anyway, so I go to ASU, then I get out of school, I go, get a part time job in Denver, which was the best experience of my life because the staff was great, and it wasn't a part time job. Denver Post was a monster of a newspaper. So they actually allowed me to go do Broncos games. And I, I did college hockey and I traveled with college hockey. Um, I went down to Houston to do something on the gamblers when, when they merged the two franchises in the USFL to do something on Mouse Davis and June Jones. Uh, I found J.R. Richards standing on the curb and wrote a story about him, which was a good story. And it ended up being sporting news, actually. So we got to do a lot of stuff. Left there, went to um, Tulsa. Worked at the Tulsa Tribune in the afternoon, which was a fun experience. Uh, became hated in that city because I was like everything and anything they weren't. You know, they were. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I, you Yankee New Yorker, they called me. You know, they didn't like me. But, and Nolan Richardson, who was then the coach at uh, Tulsa, that's where the infamous Prisco Disco Cisco came oh, yeah. from. And then, uh, <laughs> then I left there part because I was an idiot. And they wanted me out, but I, I I deserved to be let go. Let's put it that way. And then um, went home, was thinking about doing something else. Started working for the St. Pete Times as a stringer. Remember that? They had they paid good money for that right. job. So I was their South Florida stringer. And then ended up at the Times Union and got hired to do college football initially. Remember, I was the Georgia beat guy. Right. You started out on Georgia and then quickly – I worked with your friend Jeff Freeze on Florida for, for a year years, or so, right? I think it was. For two years, that's right. And then in 89, I moved over and I started doing the NFL. And we did the NFL. I would go to games every weekend. And I went to the Super Bowl from that point on. I've been in every one since that, 89-55 to, what was it, 55-10, blistering in the, in the Superdome that year. The, the Broncos got killed by the 49ers. The Broncos 49ers. And that was so long ago. I love to tell that story because that was so long ago, John, that the players in the locker room were screaming, we got the speed limit. <laughs> Remember? Because the speed limit. Used <laughs> <Yeah>. to- <laughs> now, pre-Jaguars at the TU, you guys covered it. Oh, I was there, but I wasn't on that level yet. Um, when do you recall, at first you were covering games, and a lot of papers back then had NFL guys even though they weren't in NFL City. That was common. It would never happen now, obviously, but that was common back then. When did you get the idea, Pete, that you were covering an expansion race more than you were the NFL? Because it 
it sort of changed for those five years, didn't it? It did. It, that was the number one priority, which is why I went to every meeting that they possibly had. If the NFL had a meeting and there were, you know, remember those spring meetings were very limited on access, but we went. I had to go manufacture a story. Hope I get one owner to Sit say. around a lot of lobbies, didn't you? Oh, yeah. Hope I got one story where an owner, I could trick an owner into saying, yeah, they have a chance, and then get a headline. Jacksonville has a chance. You know, I, I was begging for stuff like that. It's actually where I got to know Roger Goodell, which, you know, th that, that whole experience was invaluable to me. I mean, I, he was a young guy in the league office at the time, and he was kind of the point man on expansion. And, you know, we used to kid him. There were a bunch of us that traveled around that, in the expansion cities. And we kind of all bonded together. And we used to call him the boy who would be commissioner. And he <laughs> didn't like it because he was, he perceived it as being, if he kept his name, kept getting out there, then they would do the exact opposite. And as it worked out, he ended up becoming the commissioner. And I had a relationship with Roger. In fact, shortly after he became commissioner, I was at a Thanksgiving day game in Detroit. And I was sitting there at the pregame meal, and all of a sudden I feel this flick in the back of my ear. And I look up, and it's Roger Goodell. And I go, come on, Roger, you're commissioner now. You can't be doing that to me anymore. <laughs> but that's who he is. People don't know who he is as a guy. He's actually a down-to-earth, easy-to-get-along-with easy to guy if you know him. And I've got to know him over the years, and, and I think he's done a good job, by the way. And he uh, – the expansion process is fascinating to me because I was covering Florida – I was covering high schools when it first started and covering Florida before I joined you on the Jags when they got it. So I wasn't with you during a lot of the reporting for that. But what I've always been curious about, I've always told people that you knew or had a feeling about Jacksonville getting it long before anybody else. And everybody thought you were crazy, and I, and I will get to that in a minute. But when did you first get the idea that they really had a chance? If you can recall that, because yeah, they got was, it in 94, but you started telling people way before that to the point Pete, where people at the paper didn't believe you. No. And you remember the one story I broke, which was infuriated a lot of people before that even got to that level, because they thought I was going to ruin it for them to get any chances to get any team was that Charlie Rice, the late Charlie Rice from Barnett Banks was in negotiations to try and buy the New England Patriots and bring them to Jacksonville. Remember that one? Right. Yeah. And that one was seen in the league circles. They got mad about it because it got out. Charlie Rice and gang were mad about it. And the expansion group in Jacksonville was mad about it because they thought they were going to ruin any chance that they had. So, but it was, that was legitimate because Victor Kayyem at the time was trying to sell the team and he obviously sold the team to, to Bob Kraft. So that was one of the first stories. And then as the process played out, remember they awarded them in two different uh, meetings. They right. first went to Charlotte. And then it was all up in, our, up in the air about who's going to get the next one. And it was going to St. Louis. I mean, it, it would have been St. Louis. The Jacksonville would have never had a franchise. St. Louis was getting the team. And then one of their investors screwed it all up. And when that happened, they turned to Wayne Weaver and said, hey, we like you. We want you in St. Louis. And he said, no, it's either Jacksonville or nothing. And he didn't go. And even though he was from St. Louis – so then I started getting wind of that Jacksonville was really, I mean, this league was really excited about Wayne Weaver and that would be a real strong point for them to push it over the top. And so they had to, obviously they had to sell all the tickets and touchdown Jacksonville and the whole thing. It looked like it was falling apart. They brought it back together, but that's kind of where that started. And believe me that 
When I wrote that story, I got a ton of pushback from people saying Jacksonville's still alive. Nobody believed me, but that that source was rock solid. Now there was a point where, as I recall, you told me the paper didn't want to run the story because they thought you were wrong. If I remember, Which, yeah, my memories because there were so many sure. of them they didn't run because they thought I was wrong. Uh, well, you were I, wrong a lot, but on that one you were. No, no, <laughs> i.e. the 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 Burnell uh, Coughlin riff. Remember? Should I bring that one up right. again? Um, uh, well, oh, we'll get to that. I think there was, yeah, because it used to, remember it used to be you had to have 18 sources to write a story back then. And right, that's though, changed a little bit. Now you don't even need one. No, no, you don't. And even <laughs> though this was like 100% rock solid uh, source, they were a little scared about it. So, yeah, but eventually I got convinced to write it, run it. The year when Coughlin was the coach, but they didn't have a team or the team wasn't there yet. I've always been intrigued by the relationship between you guys because Tom, you know, I was there for so much of it. When you cover a beat and you're dealing with a head coach, and that's really the head coach that you dealt with as a beat writer because you weren't a beat writer after you left. Um, what was that year like? And I know the answer to it. When Tom didn't have a team and you guys were basically at each other every day. Well, it started off poorly because I wrote the story and talked to some of his former receivers and they called him maniac coach after maniac that movie. Coach, that's right. I think it was Mark. You talked to receivers in Green Bay and in Philly, Philly right? Yeah. And, and okay. I think it was Mark Ingram or or one of those to use the maniac cop line and he never forgot that 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 you know shot shot you know how he would say that's a shot that's a shot <laughs> and so that didn't exactly you know make it warm and fuzzy um and then and then you know that whole season remember he had his tapes in that room remember you remember the first year was in that trailer I don't know if you remember. That. I remember talking about the trailer. I came after the trailer. Well, in the trailer, you'd have to go into the trailer and walk down the hallway and go to his office. Well, he was very, you know how he always was. He never wanted anybody in his office. Remember the story where he let Peter King in the office, and Peter right. King wrote a story about the tapes on the that he was looking at, and one of them was Mark Grinnell, and Coughlin got angry about it. And from that point on, nobody ever went into his office. Remember right. that was the end of it. And yeah, so, I never saw it. Yeah. No, I never saw, I never saw the inside of his office ever. You believe that? The whole time I covered that team. Remember he used to meet us in, in different rooms and stuff. He never let us go into his office. In part, I found out later, his desk was raised up so he could right. look down on the players when they came in. And after Jack Del Rio told me that actually, and I wrote that story that he chopped the desk back down and brought it down to the level and Kaufman read that somehow and said, oh, another shot. There you go. Taking a shot. The desk shot. Pete, so, when I came back in 2011, remember, I left in 01 when Coughlin was still the coach, and you had left about six months before me. I went to the Colts for 10 years, came back, and in the first couple of months, Jack was still the head coach. I went down to interview him. That was in 2011, and it was the first time in 16 years. I had never seen the inside of the head coach's office, and I told him that, and Jack started laughing. Yeah, he used to laugh about and it all the time. That's how it was. Coughlin used to, you know, get mad about it, but that's just who he was. And, you know, yeah. we used to have to go, heck, 
I remember me and you hiding in the um, in the weight room when he came in because we were talking <laughs> to Kevin Gilbride. Everybody was terrified. Okay. It was. I'll tell you what. I couldn't. For, being a beat guy, for really first time in the NFL, I couldn't have asked for more. It was the greatest experience ever for me. Being able to deal with him on a daily basis and being able to deal with a new bunch of guys in a, a locker room, they were all kind of coming together. It was fair. And you were there for it all. It was great. The theater was great. The stuff that went on would never go on now. I yeah, mean, it, I think that's what is, is most fascinating to me. Yeah. I've been doing this 25 years now. You've been doing it longer. I don't think I realize like we talked about it. When we were on the beat. We'd be on the road and we'd say, you know, expansion year, but at the age we were, I don't think we realized exactly what an incredible opportunity it was. We sort of knew, but I don't think, I don't think you realize until you look back that all the stories, uh, Leon Brown and Stevens Point, Baselli getting hurt there, uh, guys yelling at us, and just the coming together of that team. I've never covered, I've covered a Super Bowl championship. I've covered that team getting to playoffs. But never a season quite like 95. No, the six weeks in Stevens Point, they beat the daylights <laughs> out of them, remember? It was, yeah. it was, and you know, I still never, I don't ever let Tony Baselli forget that they sent him home on the private plane. Everybody else gets hurt, they go home. They sent the private plane, <laughs> the private plane for Tony Baselli. And, and so, yeah, I mean, you mentioned Leon Brown. That was still one of the most terrific, and, and I saw him uh, a couple years ago. He's a police officer in Jacksonville. One of the most disgusting injuries we've ever seen anywhere. Remember, it was facing one way, and his leg was going the other way. And well, and and, and we've talked before. It's the only time I've seen players who wouldn't look at an injury when it happened. They were running and looking away, and not wanting to be around it. It was that bad. And, and Leon Brown, people who don't know, was a running back from Paxson who was a good player. At, I'm not sure he made the team or not, but it was a, yeah, it was a horrific injury and obviously never played again. So Remember, remember the other thing, it was raining that day. Yeah. So there was some theory that, remember, he went out and practiced anyways, and there was some theory that the wet field contributed to it. But then not only that, as most coaches would do, he moved the drill, Coughlin moved the drill over 10, 10 yeah. 10 yards and ran the next play with Leon's foot facing um, Green yeah. Bay. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it was, it was, cool. uh, it was And then brutal. there was the Ernest Givens, um, uh, Desmond Big Howard out. fiasco. I mean, that was another one. It was just, he was, look, I came to respect him with the utmost respect. I really did. But in that first year, and you know it, you were part of it. He was psycho. <laughs> and that's, I think the interesting thing, there's so many, you know, when you cover a guy the way you covered Tom, and I covered Spurrier at Florida, and I was around coaches when I was in Indianapolis, but when you're the beat guy, and you're talking to him every day, and you're trying to poke and prod for information, I think you really get to know a coach on a level where you're thinking about him all the time, it's it's a weird level that you're trying to analyze a guy, but I've talked to you since then. And, and the respect that you have for him, and I think it goes the other way too. I, I guess the question would be, there's the persona of Tom, 
but you have a respect for him beyond that. And the respect really is real. You, I think, have an admiration for the guy, don't you? He's a good man. There's a lot of coaches in the league who aren't good men. Tom Coughlin's a good man. And that's why you got to respect him. Look, he can be as crazy and maniacal as any coach ever has been. And he was. I mean, we and you could tell stories all day about him. <laughs> uh, you know, painting the inside of the, of the hallways of, instead of just painting part of it and then having him do it over and over again because he didn't like it. I mean, little crazy things. But you know what? He was always a good man. And we didn't see that a lot during football season. But me and you would always sit down with him at like the owners meetings with him and his wife, Judy. And we'd always come away. We'd say, God, why don't we get that side of him that much? You know, because he was so open and accommodating. Then there's the other Tom. And you'll remember this story. You remember the Seafood Jubilee at the Senior Bowl when he was bossing <laughs> around the waitress and had to pick up the plates and clean it up. Remember? Yeah. I mean, that's – Yeah, he can't turn it off. He's always a coach. Yeah. So, yeah, but a good man. And not, you can't say that about uh, – you know, there's some good coaches in the league and some good men in the league. But one thing about Tom Coughlin, he is genuine when it comes to being him as a person. There's no question about that. When we flew home from Stevens Point, after six weeks and you're sleeping at 7 a.m. and your brother says, Hey, Pete, Tom's on the phone. Was he a good man that morning? Uh, no. And in fact, the stuff <laughs> he said on there, I cannot repeat on here. It was, uh, it was actually probably more like six and, uh, and I was hurting in the worst possible way. And I picked it and I took the phone call and he, as soon as I said, I went, Hello. And we just went off. F- now they had lost to F- the F- Lions. Yeah. in a preseason game, and you had written that players were saying their legs were dead because camp was tough. That was, he was Genesis the call, right? And, we, and he didn't see the story until the next day. So by that time, right. he let it fester, and he called me. We flew home. Remember, I went out there, and he just ripped me. And I said to him, finally I said to him, I, I, all right, Tom, whatever. Don't give him an excuse was the thing he kept screaming over and over again. And then finally I said, Tom, do I call you at 6 o'clock in the morning? He goes, no. I go, good. And I hung up on him. <laughs> Let me ask you this. Do you think the 96-99 run happens if he had been any different that first season? Nope. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Because he really did shape the franchise. He did it the right way. He did it. I mean, he went overboard on some things, but he did it the right way. That's the only way. And he, you know, even going back years, and you've been around me when we talked to him about 95, and he says, I had to weed out that team. I had to find out who was here to stay and who was here to play. And that's why he beat the daylights out of him to Stevens Point. So I get, I yeah, no, I think the foundation was built by that '95 team. What's your favorite rubber hallway story? We walked that hallway with him every day for five years. Anything stand out? Hell yeah, there's a there's a the one that stands out more than any is I was talking to him about contract extension. I said, Hey Tom, I'm going to do a Sunday thing where I said, it's time. They need to give him a contract extension. And he goes, okay, okay. I go, but I was, you know, when you do get it and he's going to get it, I said, I want you to make sure I get it first. You give it to me. Okay. Okay. So I write the column, you know, and it was, you know, he deserved it. Well, oh, yeah. in, between, in between, I think the time that the, he got his extension and the time the call or they announced the extension or gave it to me and the column came out, I reported him for the Jimmy Smith hiding the injury. Remember that? Yeah. 
Yeah. I had warned him, and you heard me many a time. I said, Tom, you can't hide injuries. And I went out in the parking lot, which was the greatest thing in the world because it was public property. And I waited for players. And they told me Jimmy wasn't practicing. So I came back in. Remember, you were right there. I called Aiello and I said, enough of this, Greg. This is every week with him. He's hiding injuries. So about – Jimmy jumped me the next day. He was mad for a dumb reason. I don't know why because it was his injury. And a couple of days later, Coughlin's walking down the hallway. No, what happened was this is before that. They released his contract extension, remember? The right. team gave it to everybody. So then – Coughlin's walking down the hallway a couple of days later, and I go, Tom, you F me. Sure. <laughs> and he looked at me, and he, and he goes, what are you talking about? I go, you told me you would give me the contract extension. And he walked, kept walking, and he turned back, and he goes, once you called the lead, the deal was off. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of my favorites. The, the calling me out for his grade was always a good one. You remember that one, too. Late in the afternoon. Do you remember that one? He got a B well, minus. The first question was, was anything so not worth the trouble than your grades? No, because the offensive linemen used to hate it. They all hated it. It was just, it infuriated them. But he, of all people, said, don't pay attention to the media, called me out one afternoon, and he pulled me out in the hallway. And I go, what? And he goes, B minus? <laughs> and I went, what are you talking about? He goes, we won 24 to 12 or whatever it was. He goes, and you gave me a B minus. I said, okay, Tom, let me just tell you this. You say you don't read the paper. So how the hell you know you got a B minus? My daughter told me. I said, well, okay, your daughter told you, and it really bothers you that much. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you this opportunity. You give yourself a grade, and I'll put it in the paper tomorrow. <laughs> and he's darn off. <laughs> yeah, it's uh... – it was a different time, I think. Maybe I sound like an old man here, but I don't know that the beat guys today have the opportunity for a relationship like that. Uh, and, and, and maybe it's because the league's so different. There was it national is. media back then, but there wasn't Twitter. There wasn't, you know, times changed, but I'm not sure that, well, there that was, sort of relationship. You, you know this, John, there were things that happened in that locker room that if they happened in today's era, they'd be instant fodder on Twitter. Oh, yeah. And swinging or, or, you know, coming after us and yelling at us and screaming at us and everything else and threatening us that, you know, that happens nowadays and it's instant, you know, all over the place. It's, you know, it's not going to be a little small little blurb or something. So yeah, it's there changed. were locker room incidents where the team could kind of go to everybody and keep them quiet. Right. And they weren't major. Yeah. I mean, if they had been major, they'd have been reported, but the, the minor dustups, uh, which were sort of part of it. And I think, too, Pete, that, that, that's probably why there's a little less trust than there ever was between players and media, because there's no way to keep things like that from being out anymore. Yeah, and, and I get it. I, believe me, as I travel around the league and I get to know people, and the, the, the access and trust is so much more limited than what it used to be. I mean, that's just a, that's the bottom line. And, you know, like hovering around, you know, guys hovering around, media relations directors hovering around when you're talking to a guy didn't happen to us a lot. We got to talk to him. Yeah, right. We could always go over to the locker, locker and talk to a guy one-on-one. -on -one. You know, it, was, it wasn't hard to do. And nowadays, so even like me being a national guy now, when I go out, sometimes you get a, 
PR guy standing in the vicinity. You know, I don't right. need around here. The guy's a grown right. man. I'm asking him grown man questions. He can speak for himself. Yeah, I think the Jaguars people, to their credit, are uh, pretty good about that. But it is tough when when you. Uh, it's hard to talk to somebody with a third person standing there. It just is. Yeah, people will say I say, I'll say people will say I'm saying this because I've been around that team for so long. But having traveled all, I've been through every team and everything. The Jaguars media department, media relations department, doesn't get the credit it deserves for being as good as they are. And, and I mean that all the way to, from Dan Edwards down to, you know, Tad Dickman, uh, Brooks, all of them. When you need stuff, I've never had a problem getting things other than Nick right. Foles, by the way, who didn't want to do it last year, but that's a whole other story. But when <laughs> I need guys on camera, they let me set up where I need to. They give me the time. And, you know, that can't, with my camera guys, that can't, that's not always the case in some cities. So I, I think if the Jaguars were a good team, people would realize that, that how helpful they are. And I know a lot of guys come in there in the last couple of years and it's been, and I hear for like guys say how much better it is, you know, but they remember the old days when there were, you know, guards in the hallways and, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Because it was tough back in those days. Well, Tom put a security guard uh, because you had a bad tooth. Remember? I, I lost a <laughs> crown. I lost a That's crown. Right. It popped off and, you know, there was no mirror there. So I go storming out and the security – no, the guard was there already. The, the story is – and he goes, you can't go over there, Pete, to that other bathroom. I go, I just lost a crown. I got to see what it looks like. So – because that one had a mirror. And I went in there and looked. And the next day we're on the practice field and Tom put that mirror in. Remember? In the bathroom That's where right. I would have had there in the bathroom next to us. That's right. Yeah. It was, uh... it was, it was a crazy, <laughs> I remember the one year where me and you and everybody, we weren't allowed. If it's remember, even if it was pouring, they didn't want us going down to the hallway, down the hallway. Right. It's It was just, it was, it was so tight back then. It didn't need to be. Then when Jack came in, it probably got a little too loose. Right. And then Gus, it was loose. And that's no, it's not a reflection of them as coaches. Just that's who they were as people. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't have a problem now, but I know there's a few more. There were, when Coughlin was around, there were a few more role, rules the last couple of years. Were, were there not? Uh, yeah, a few, but that's Tom. Don't you remember when he moved the media room? I mean, he moved us into, the, he moved it because me and you were looking out of the hallway watching guys get cut. Right. Yeah, they moved it down and moved it back, so. Yeah, at Absolutely. first it wasn't even a media room. It was just like some hallway we had to sit in when the entrance. Then they moved us down and we had it where in the middle of the, I mean, granted, I'm going to sit there and say this. That was one of the best rooms ever because we were right in the middle of everybody. We could get oh, yeah, coaches used fun. to come by and talk to us. That, yeah. That drove them up the wall. Keenan used to come in and look at his stats every week, remember? <laughs> no doubt. Hey, Keenan liked his stats. That's, I still tell Keenan. Of Keenan, he's still white. You know, he's a wide receiver coach. There, he used to come in and remember he pick up this league because league stats were always by paper back then. That's and he pick him up and right. look and he go, "Where am I on this?" And we'd go, me and you would look at him, go, "You know exactly where you are, Keenan. Stop it." We'll close this week because uh, we'll talk again next week, according to the same time. Um, how much did that time, I guess, shape you for what you're doing now? A ton. A ton. It, it made me want to be aggressive. It made me learn that I could be aggressive and not be, you know, fearful of the repercussions if I was. And right. it taught me how to get a story. I mean, I, I could always get a story. I mean, Fred <laughs> Taylor. Fred Taylor will tell you I tricked him to this day into saying he could rush for two thousand yards. I didn't trick him. I just got a good story. 
and, and you know, and so I could do that. I could get guys to talk. And I still, to this day, you know, one of my bosses said to me recently, he goes, you know, the best thing about you is you talk to everybody the exact same way. It right. could be the CEO of a major company or the guy, you know, waiter, waiter at the, at the, at the restaurant, you talk to them all the same way. And, and that's a good thing. And I think that's something that helped me in the locker room and it helped me throughout my career is being able to talk to everybody and, and handle them all the same way. I was never in all of them. I, I respected them, but I was never in all of any of them. Is there anything you miss uh, about being a beat guy? Yeah, the interactions. I, I love talking football with players and I love being able to, you know, Tony Baselli was great to be, just walk over and talk to him. I would never admit that to him now and talk football and going over to talk to Fred Taylor and, you know, just talking about stuff away from football and getting to know the right. guys on a personal level. I miss that, 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 you know, and I, I try to do that a little bit and I've gotten enough, you know, guys I never knew before I've got, you know, I've made relationships with him like Honey Badger, for example, I've gotten to know him over the years and, and after, I don't know if you saw the video, but after the Super Bowl this year, I was doing a live hit and he was coming over to do a hit with us. And he just, you know, naturally in the flow of things, he jumped on me and like tackled me almost, you know, and, and it went viral. And that's how I miss those kind of relationships with players because you don't get a lot of them in our business anymore. Fortunately for him, he didn't have to jump very high, right? No, but my back hasn't been the same yet. <laughs> so I'm going to have a little chat with him. <laughs> the... Next episode, for people listening, we're going to dig deep on some of the 96, 97, 98, uh, the glory year teams, because Pete and I were up front for all of them. Pete, we'll talk to you then. Got it. And we're going to talk to Pete again next week. There was so much to cover with him that we decided to break it into two episodes. We both of them went really, really long. But Dave, I think the interesting thing about Pete, and I was trying to think of how I wanted to verbalize this, um, media guys, sometimes get associated with teams, rightfully so, because it's who they grew up covering. And as we were talking to Pete, we really didn't even intro Pete as being from CBS Sports. And he's obviously been with CBS for 20 years. But I think to Jaguars fans, the point I'm getting at is to Jaguars fans, he's still a Jaguars writer. There's still a connection. And He's not a homer. He's not a fan of the team per se, but he is a guy that there's certain people in the media. There's certain experts and analysts who really, really know the Jaguars well. And I would put Pete still uh, because he does the show every week with Tony, because he has still been tied to Jacksonville, maybe not quite to the levels when he was covering the team, but I would still Pete. I would still put Pete up with uh, one of the two, three, four most knowledgeable people about this team. And I think fans of this team will always feel a connection. And I think he will too with this organization. It, it's not fair to say that it made his career, but there is certainly a strong association with Pete Prisco and the Jaguars. And one on some level, I think that he feels is very important to him. Yeah, when you said 20 years, I was like, really? 20 years? It's been that long that he's been at CBS Sports? And it's funny with every... Yeah, he's the longest running, and I don't think we talked about this on either podcast, but he has been with his internet site, if you call it that, CBS Sports. And he's now more TV. But he has been with the same organization 
longer than any other national writer, meaning Peter King was a Sports Illustrated, but he's left Sports Illustrated. Michael Silver was a Sports Illustrated. There are guys who've been national guys longest, but Pete left for CBS, and it, it will be 20 years in October because I can remember we were walking through Dallas Stadium, Cowboys Stadium, the day that Alvis Witt had scored the winning touchdown, which you can probably remember in overtime. Before that game, he and I were walking through Cowboys Stadium the press box, and he got the call from CBS. And that's when I knew I was going to be taking over the beat, and it's when I knew Pete would be leaving. And this isn't to discredit any beat writer that's been here before, but it seems like it went Pete Prisco and then whoever the current one is. But I know that's not true. It just seems like he's so ingrained with the Jaguars and and so knowledgeable and kind of I don't want to call it an advocate because that's kind of a wrong context, but he's definitely like the national voice that has info on the Jaguars, which I think most don't. I think that's what kind of makes him unique for Jaguars fans. And, and even now, since recently with the Vaselli hall of fame stuff, he's been very vocal about it. Um, And I've always appreciated Pete since he's been with CBS where he's still, he, he never turned to like, okay, there's, the big market teams and Green Bay and then no one else. I, I really appreciate Pete's always been uh, – always has his eye on the Jaguars and always kind of knows what's going on and has an opinion about it. Um, well, and, like, and the one thing I thought was really interesting uh, about our conversation or your conversation with him was kind of his path to Jacksonville and how it all worked out. It just kind of, you know, being in the business, it just seems like everyone kind of has the same story where you – you work at your college paper or your college TV station, and then you go work somewhere and cover the Olympic type sports. And then eventually you get to the NFL. And uh, it was just interesting to hear his path because I didn't know it. Um, but I always appreciate Pete and he's, he's a good guy to work with. He, he's on our Monday show with uh, Tony and JP. And uh, he's always, you know, he's always easy to work with. Yeah, I met Pete uh, in, in one of my first days of the newspaper. He was full-time. I was part-time just starting out. And I, I got to admit, we were not kindred spirits when we first met, meaning he was a little bit older than I was. Uh, he was this guy from South Florida, from uh, New York. I was, I was sort of a Jacksonville kid. Uh, we were not one in the same personality-wise. I'm much quieter. Uh, he's much more outgoing. But we got the beat together, and I was his backup in in '95, and uh, worked for five or six years together. I respect him as much as I respect anybody in the business. And uh, probably the final thought for today on Pete, I would say, you mentioned him not being an an advocate of the Jags, and I would say that's true because he's not an advocate of anybody. But what he is is he's very aware that there are times when this team, this market, gets treated unfairly because of what I think most uh, readers and fans realize there is a little bit of national people look at Jacksonville and think, Oh, you know, how do they have a team? There's a certain reputation. Pete's always defensive of that. And I don't know if defensive is the right word, but he's always a defender of the market. And uh, he feels an affinity for this town. It's where he grew up uh, professionally. He's very tied in. He respects this town. He knows what this town has gone through to have the NFL. He was as tied in as anybody to that. So I, I don't know if it's fair to call him 
uh, an advocate for the team on the field necessarily, but in terms of the franchise, in terms of making an effort to treat this franchise as fair as it, as, it, as he possibly can, he's probably the number one advocate in the Jacksonville media. And uh, not everybody in his position would necessarily do that. So I think fans, I think they have that feel from Pete. I think most fans who follow the team respect him and they get that vibe from him. So uh, that's probably, Dave, the best way to end this week's Ozone Podcast with Pete. I want to thank you as always. Thank Joe Fortunato as always for making this thing sound as good as it possibly can with me involved so much. And I look forward to hearing from Pete next week as well. Thank you, everybody.